Good morning. It's good to hear you sing the praises of God. I love it when this sanctuary is filled with God's praises. Doesn't that sound sweet to y'all? If you've got a Bible, open me to Galatians chapter 2. We're continuing in our series studying the book of Galatians. If you're new with us, I'll give you a little summary here in just a second to kind of catch you up. And we're glad that you're here with us today. Uh, so I have a confession for you. Thank you, guys. I have a confession for you. Um, and maybe you're like me. Uh, I am someone who, when I get a birthday card, I read it and then I throw it in the recycling. I know, it's, a, it's kind of a bad thing. So, but don't leave me alone here. Come join me in the bucket of shame. How many of you, that's what you do? Yeah. Okay, can I tell you that after first service, I shared this, somebody came to me and said, hey, I'll do you one better. I know a couple who, now he was tattling on another couple, but he said, on their anniversary or birthdays, they just go to the store, read the cards, pick them out for each other, give them to each other, read them and put them back. I was like, I am off scot-free. I mean, I'm good because I take it, I read it. No, I, you know, I have some sentimentality. Like I read it and I'm very thankful for it, but I'm a person who doesn't like clutter at all. So like it goes away immediately. Like I, you know, so now let's talk about the other end of the spectrum because some of you are the other way. I also had somebody come up to me and say, I got a card from my like girlfriend in what fifth grade or whatever. And now I've been married to that girl for 54 years and I still have that card. And I was like, all right. How many of you have cards from your birthday and anniversary or something that you've had for more than five years? Let's say more than five years. Wow, all right. I'm in the minority. How many of you, something for 10 years? You have something from 10 years or more, okay? I'm gonna double you up now, 20 years. 20 years, you got something from 20 years ago. Some of you are not 20 years old. <laughs> Do not lie to me. No, I have it. It's from when I was, you know, in my mom's womb. No, you don't. How many of you have something from 40 years ago? A card from 40 years, well done, well done. All right, so, you know, there's a time and a place for change, right? I'm a person who, the reason I don't keep stuff is because I am a person who does not like to keep things. I like to engage with things and change them. I'm a change person. I like to change things. I like to make them better. I like to see them grow. That's kind of how I'm wired. So I'm not really wired to preserve or to keep things the same way all the time. Now, some of you are more wired that way and both are good, right? There's a time and a place for change. There's a time and a place for seeking to make things new, but there's also an importance in preservation. There's an importance in preservation and some things need to be preserved. They're not meant to be changed. They're not meant to be added to. And chief among those things, my guess is you know where I'm going, is the gospel of Jesus itself that it is something to be preserved, not added to, and not changed. And as we come to Galatians chapter two, that's what we're gonna find Paul is gonna argue. The gospel is this beautiful, good, great, God-glorifying news. And because it's so great and so good, there's nothing that needs to be added to it. There's nothing about it that needs to be changed. In fact, it needs to be guarded. It needs to be preserved. It needs to be kept, all right? So those of you, my friends, who are preservationists by nature, you get to help us do that, right? Uh, so that's what we're gonna see today in Galatians chapter two. Now, let me, before we read the 10 verses that we're gonna look at today, Galatians two, verses one to 10, let me remind you where we've been. So we started with an overview of Galatians. And what we said is that it's a book that's really all about freedom and the freedom that is offered in the gospel of Jesus. And the gospel is this good news that starts with bad news, right? That we are in rebellion against God, all of humankind, is in, a is in rebellion against our creator, that he has created us in love and we have rebelled against him by not keeping ourselves faithful to him. 
And being then trapped in that sin, we need someone to rescue us, someone to deliver us. And what God has done is he sent Jesus, his son, into the world who lived a perfect life so that when he died, it wasn't a penalty for his own sins, but rather he could pay the penalty for our sins so that we could, instead of facing death, which is what we deserve for our sins, we could be rescued from that. The penalty was paid. And it was a sufficient payment. Jesus' death on the cross. But then he didn't stay dead. He didn't stay in the grave, which is what we just sang. You recognize we sang about the sufficiency of the cross. Oh, your cross, what you've done is more than enough. The power of your blood is more than enough. But then we went on to sing about the resurrection of the king, yes? You just sang the gospel, is what you sang. You sang the beautiful good news that God declared the sacrifice of Jesus sufficient payment for your sins and for mine by raising him from the dead. And he is not dead, he is alive. And being alive now, he sits at the right hand of the Father. And all who believe in him, all who believe that your sin, my sin, that Jesus' blood, his death on the cross is sufficient payment for that sin and believe that he rose from the dead to demonstrate the power of God over death and to defeat it once and for all and forever will receive eternal life, will be reconciled to God forever and live with him. It's the best news anyone's ever, ever heard. This is the gospel. And so what Paul argues in Galatians, he says there's a freedom that can be yours. And it's a, it's a threefold freedom. He says, you can be free from death, which means you don't have to be separated from God forever if you believe the gospel. You can be free from not just death, but from the law, which means you're free to not have to earn your right status with God. You don't have to keep doing it over and over. You don't have to get on that performance wheel, the hamster wheel, you know, of like, I'm gonna earn it, I'm gonna earn it, I'm gonna earn it, I'm gonna do enough, I'm gonna do enough, I'm gonna do enough. You don't have to do that anymore. You're free from that if you believe the gospel. And then he says, not only those kinds of freedom, but there's a third kind of freedom that it offers and it's freedom from sin. It doesn't just mean the penalty of sin there, as we get further in the book, we're going to see in Galatians 5 and 6, he's going to say, you're free from having to give way to your worst desires, which are still in you, yes? You have those desires. You go, I, I don't, I should not, and I cannot follow those. Those are sinful, they're wrong, they're not good. I don't want to follow them. And what he says is the gospel is powerful enough to bring the spirit of God into your life so that when he comes, he transforms your desires even. So it's power over death, power over the law, power over sin. That's, that's kind of how we summarize the book. And so we're just examining that as we go. And then in chapter one, at the very beginning, what we found is that Paul argues, you might hear that good news as you read this whole book and you might think, hey, that's great. The gospel can give that kind of freedom, but surely there's other things that can give that kind of freedom too. Maybe I can have it through my intellectual pursuits or maybe I can have it through a different worldview or a different religious system. And Paul is really adamant. He says, there is only one piece of good news, only one gospel that can set free. There's not multiple. There's not many ways to be set free. There's, there's one way to be set free. And in this way, the gospel is both exclusive and inclusive. It's exclusive in that it says there is no other news. There is no other way. There is one way through the death and resurrection of Jesus. But it's inclusive in that it's for all who believe. It's not for a certain group of people with a certain intellectual mindset or from a certain ethnic background or from a certain socioeconomic status. He says, it's, it's for all who would believe, which is great news. So having then argued that if there's only one gospel, then he went on in the rest of chapter one to say, and not only that, but he's arguing for his own apostolic authority. And as we're gonna see, I'm gonna get you a little history today, a little background. 
there's this group of people that have come to Galatia and what they're arguing is that they represent the apostles in Jerusalem, Peter and James and John in particular, kind of the, the big three, if you will, that were the apostles of Jesus. And they're saying, Paul doesn't have the same kind of, we represent them, Galatians. And we're telling you something that Paul is wrong. He doesn't have as much authority. And so Paul is actually arguing at the end of chapter one about saying, I'm not a lesser apostle. I'm equal in authority to the other apostles, to Peter and James and John, because God has called me and set me apart from before I was born for the work which I'm doing. I am an apostle in equal authority. And in order to help us understand his authority, what he did and what we looked at last week was that he didn't just say, I'm equal in authority. He pointed out how the gospel itself is full of authority and why you should believe it. So in other words, you might hear, this is the only way to be set free. It can set free. It's the only way to be set free. And you might say, well, what's the evidence for that? And he talks about the gospel's divine origins and its power to change and its power to convince people to pay a cost. That's what we saw last week. So we all caught up, everybody good? All right, fantastic. So here's what he's gonna do this week. He's gonna say, not only am I equal in authority with these other apostles, in these first 10 verses of chapter two, what he's gonna say is, and we're not giving different messages. We're united in our message. It's not that they're saying one thing and I'm saying another. We're saying the same thing. And the reason he's doing that is because the people who have gone into Galatia and are stirring up trouble for the churches there are telling them that they represent Peter, James, and John, and Paul has a different message than Peter and James and John. And so he's going to say, that's not true. And he's going to say, we need to preserve the message that Peter, James, John, and myself are all proclaiming to you. So that's what we're going to see today as we look at Galatians chapter two. The gospel needs to be, the key word is preserved. Everybody say preserved. Preserved. All right, fantastic. So two questions we want to answer today. Why and how? Why must the gospel be preserved? Now, there's a lot of answers to that question. This passage is going to give us four answers to that question. Why must it be preserved? And then how do we do it? And I don't want to be just as simple, as simple as I can be. There's two reasons this text gives us uh, four whys and two hows. Okay, so let's read it together. Galatians 2, 1 to 10. Let's get your eyes in the text. Now, I think it's J.B. Lightfoot. He's a scholar. He calls this a grammatical train wreck, these 10 verses. And he is not wrong, all right? So let's read it. I'm gonna kind of interrupt. So forgive me if that messes you up, but get your finger like in the word. And I'm gonna kind of try and explain things as we go so we can follow the flow of what is a particularly difficult kind of There's a lot of parentheticals. Do you have friends who speak in parentheticals? They go, blah, 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 blah. And then they give this little parentheses over and then they kind of go back over here. And then there's another parentheses over here. That's pretty much what Paul's about to do, all right? So walk with me through it. Let's do it. Starting in verse one, he says, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, so here's this first parenthetical thought though privately before those who seemed influential. So in other words, he's saying, I I went up, and I'm gonna tell you in a few minutes why he went up. He had another agenda, uh, but during that visit to Jerusalem, he got a little side audience and he said, hey, let's just have a conversation, Peter and James and John, about what what we're proclaiming. Let's make sure we're on the same page, okay? So he says, put it before them privately, those who seemed influential. And then he says, the gospel, that's what he put before them, that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. It'd be a big problem if one set of apostles were saying one thing and he was saying another. 
But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. All right, pause, time out. Let me make sure we understand circumcision here for a second. Now, in the chapters to come, we're gonna talk about circumcision in more detail because it's going to be the, Paul's big argument about why these people are asking for circumcision to be followed. We're not gonna do all that today. Here's what you need to know for our purposes today, all right? Circumcision is a covenant within the nation of Israel that God gave to them way back in Genesis 17. So he took Abram, and this is where he changes his name to Abraham. And he says, I'm going to seal my covenant with you through an outward mark, an outward indicator. And that indicator is going to be circumcision. It's going to mark every Israelite male, right? Every Jewish male. And the reason I'm going to ask you to do that, the reason I'm going to have you do that is because I want there to be a physical uh, indicator that you are set apart for me. You're not supposed to be like the world. You're supposed to be different than the world. You're going to be set apart. And this is going to be the indicator of that. And so the question that has come into play for the church is, okay, most of the church, again, all the apostles, Jesus himself is Jewish. And so the question becomes, is Jesus, as he's the fulfillment of the law, the Old Testament law for righteousness, do we still need to keep certain parts of the law? Do we not? And we're going to get into that in detail. We're going to talk about why do we still want to follow laws like don't murder and don't steal? Why do those still hold weight over us? Why do they still a right way to live? And yet, and yet he's going to say things like, you don't need to include circumcision, this covenant for being right with God. Okay. So the thing you need to see here is that the question that's being asked is you've got this group of people who have come to the Galatians and they said, I know that Paul told you that all you need is to believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead and that through faith in him, you can have eternal life. But I'm gonna tell you, you both need to believe in him. And also you need to keep certain Old Testament laws. In particular in Galatians, we're gonna see circumcision. You need to receive that. Even those who are not Jewish, Gentiles need to receive that. That's Titus, okay? You need to receive that. So in order, you need to keep that part of the law and also some feasts and festivals that you need to keep. In chapter four, he's gonna talk about some of those. Okay, so what we need to understand is that they're adding something to the cross for justification with God. Everybody clear on that? All right, that's what you need to get for now. We'll get into some of the nitty gritty of that more in the weeks to come. All right, so here's what he says then. Titus wasn't forced to be circumcised, yet because of false brothers, look at how strongly he talks about them. Because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that we might, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. You see that word preserved there, yes? He's saying, we saw that the very gospel itself was at stake in what was being argued. It wasn't just a kind of like, well, I don't know, maybe, maybe not. It was a clear no. If we accept this teaching, we have not preserved the truth not preserved the gospel. So then verse six, and from those who seem to be influential, another parenthetical thought here, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those I say who seemed influential added nothing to me. In other words, what they said is we're preaching the same thing you're preaching, Paul. You're saying Jesus, Jesus blood alone. We're saying the same thing. We are not saying Jesus plus circumcision, Jesus plus obedience to the law is what you need to be justified before God. Same message. So he says, they added nothing to me. You got that? 
All right, cool. So then he goes on and he says, verse seven, on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that's Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, that's Jews. Another parenthetical thought. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. So that parenthetical thought is just saying they saw good fruit being born out of what I was doing, the same as the fruit that was being born out of their work that they did, the gospel that they proclaimed. And when James and Cephas and John, so there he identifies who these influential apostles are. When James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. The right hand of fellowship is an indicator to say, yes, the spirit is working through you and he's working through us. And we extend our right hands to one another and say, we're, we're together, we're united. And then he says that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So we have different parts of the mission, but it's the same mission. And then verse 10, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. All right, so as we look at these 10 verses, I wanna give you four indicators of, how, of why the gospel must be preserved that we see here. And then we'll talk about two reasons, two ways, sorry, how we do that. All right, so the first reason why the gospel must be preserved is because of this word that we saw in verse seven, the word entrustment, entrustment. Did you see that? Paul says, when the apostles, when Peter and James and John saw that I was entrusted with the gospel to take it to the Gentiles, just as they were entrusted with the gospel to take it to the, the Jews, they extended the right hand of fellowship. They didn't add anything to me. But that word entrustment is key because it implies something. Now we see that word in verse seven, but really it's the thrust of his whole argument. All right, let me give you a little historical background. I'm gonna throw a map up here for you. I'm gonna hit it faster than I did in the first service because I lingered a little bit too long on it. Let me give you a little synopsis of Paul's life after he came to believe in Jesus. If those errors are too small, no, never fear, all right? You don't need to see where everything goes. But here's what I wanna point out. So if you can read it, right there kind of in the middle where that one line goes off to the Arabian desert. Oh, you guys are awesome. Thank you, team. I wish I had a laser pointer. That's what I should have. That's Damascus right there. So Paul comes to faith and then he goes and he spends three years in the desert. Now, not many people know that, but he referenced it in Galatians chapter one. It's not written about in the book of Acts. He goes and he spends three years in the desert. What most people, what most scholars think is that he was probably proclaiming the gospel there to people that were out in the middle of nowhere. But mostly what he's doing is he's spending three years talking to Jesus. Three years getting equipped for what's gonna come. Now, let me just say, those of you who are younger and have a call upon your life, the gospel ministry, which is all of us are called uh, to represent the gospel, but maybe there's a particular kind of ministry God's calling you to. And sometimes if you're young, you get antsy to be about that work. And can I just say that, man, if Paul needed three years to be prepared, it's okay to take time to be prepared. You are not <laughs> better equipped prior to your calling than Paul. It's okay. Sometimes we wanna run right into places of authority and run right into like the, the work that we think we kind of almost deserve to get to do. Uh, and man, friends, I just wanna encourage you into patience. Patience, time with Jesus, whatever work God has for you to do, it will not be done apart from a deep and intimate relationship with him. It will not happen. So he spends those three years out there. He comes back 
And in Acts chapter nine, we hear about a 15 day visit that he gets to, so he goes down to Jerusalem. So those arrows going down. He goes and he spends 15 days there. He's conversing with the apostles. Pattern of Paul's life, people wanna kill him. Doesn't take long, right? So in Acts chapter nine, I think it's verse 26, we hear, man, they were coming after him. And so the apostles, they get him out of Jerusalem and he goes way up to that Northern part of the map there. That's Tarsus. You may recognize that that's Paul's home. It's where he's from. He's born and raised there. He goes and he spends 13 more years there. 13 more years. Then after 13 years, the apostles in Jerusalem are hearing about this awesome stuff that's happening in this place called Antioch. So team, can we highlight Antioch up there? So there's Antioch there where you see that. That's the base of almost everything Paul does for the rest of his ministry. So Barnabas is sent up. By the way, Barnabas is the man. If you've ever read through scripture, I love Barnabas. That guy is absolutely amazing. So he's in Jerusalem and the apostles, Peter and James and John, they say, hey, Barnabas, why don't you go check out what's going on up in Antioch? And Barnabas is the kind of guy that goes, yeah, yeah, I'll go. But he couldn't care less about his own reputation or power. He's like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go get Paul so we can do this together. And so he, you see that little circle, that little purple circle arrow. He goes over to Tarsus, he gets Paul, he brings him back and they minister to the church in Antioch for a year together. So that's why we find at the beginning of the passage that we just read, that what we hear is after 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem. So 14 years after his conversion, Paul is in Antioch with Barnabas, and in Acts chapter 11, what we hear is there's a famine in Jerusalem. And so the church in Antioch wants to send some money to help out the church there so they can have food. And so in Acts chapter 11, Paul and Barnabas head down to Jerusalem. And that at that point, he goes for this famine relief visit, but he takes that opportunity to have this private conversation that we just read about with Peter and James and John. He pulls them aside and he goes, hey, I got a question for you. Is there anything that you would add to what I'm preaching? Am I running in vain? And they say, we add nothing to you. We don't add anything to you. Now from there, and here's, I'm gonna tell you why this is important in just a moment, all right? So stick with me on the history. You guys are doing great, all right? So here's what happens. <clears throat> he goes back to Antioch. From there, in Acts 13 and 14, he goes on his first missionary journey. And when he goes on that journey, he plants the churches that are in Galatia, in the cities of uh, Derby, Lystra, Iconium. He plants churches there. Those are the churches he's writing to in this book. And after planting those in Acts 13 and 14, something really important happens in Acts 15. There's a thing called the Jerusalem Council where they're gonna settle this circumcision issue once and for all. They're hearing that different pockets and places are getting concerned about whether or not they need to have circumcision in addition to the believing in the work of Jesus on the cross. And so in Acts 15, they settle that issue and they say, no, it's the cross of Jesus alone that justifies and faith in that cross, not the works of the law in particular, circumcision. So you don't, Gentiles, you don't need to be circumcised in order to be justified. Now, all that happens, and the reason that's important is because somewhere between Paul's visit down to Jerusalem that he talks about here in Acts chapter 11, where he's talking to Peter and James and John, and they're agreeing, we are unified in our gospel, and then going off in Acts 13 and 14 to tell the people of Galatia about the gospel and they come to believe. And then he moves on back to Antioch and then off on other journeys. Some group of people have come from Jerusalem behind him and are claiming to represent Peter and James and John and saying, you know what? You do need to be circumcised. 
And what Paul is saying is, no, no, no. I talked with Peter and James and John before these people ever came to you and before I ever came to you. And we clarified that we are on the same page, that you do not need to add anything to the finished work of Jesus in order to be justified. But these people kind of trailing behind Paul had come and spread that false message. And Paul does not have nice things to say about them here. All right, everybody follow the history, yes? Here's why that's important. Because what Paul was clarifying, his whole line of argument in these 10 verses is, I'm on the same page with Peter and James and John, and all of us recognize that the gospel is not a message that we have the authority to change. It is an entrustment. And what is an entrustment? It's something given to you by someone else that you are to care for. Does that make sense? And so what he's saying is, if I entrust you with something and it belongs to me, but I entrust it to you, do you have permission to change it? Do you have permission to add to it? Do you have permission to break it? to do whatever you want with it. No, you are given it for a purpose and a reason. Entrustment implies guardianship and it implies a work then to be done with it. That's what Paul is saying. And it's his whole argument here in these 10 verses. So we, we linger a little bit longer there because what I need you to understand is everything else he's gonna say really stems from that belief. This gospel is not mine to do with what I want. It has been trusted to me by God. It goes back to what he said of it being a thing of divine origin, not man-made. So the first reason we have to preserve the gospel is because it's been entrusted to us. Do you know that the moment that you believed in Jesus, you were entrusted with this thing called the gospel? The most precious gift. I don't know if when you were 16, your mom and dad bought you a brand new car. I don't know if somebody in your life was wealthy and when they passed away in their will, they left you a massive inheritance. I don't know if a mom or dad handed on a business to you that you now run and that was given to you. Those are pretty, pretty big kinds of gifts, yeah? Not a single one of those is even close to the gift you have been given in the gospel of Jesus. You have been entrusted with something precious and powerful and rich and deep and profound. What are you doing with it? Are you looking to change it, to add to it, to shrink back from it? Or do you see it for what it is? The greatest gift you've ever received. And it is precious and it is in your hands. In your hands. So the second reason we have to preserve the gospel is not just because it's a an entrustment, but because there's a human impulse, and this applies to you and to me, to add to it. So here, here's my fear is that this week you'd hear this and you go, yeah, 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 absolutely. We're justified by the cross of Jesus, by his blood alone. I know that. I believe that. If you've been part of this church for long enough, I mean, maybe that's new news to you. And so let me just be gracious and gentle with you, friends. But you need to hear this. But some of us have been a part of this church or maybe other churches where we've heard this message a lot. And so my fear is that you would go, yep, I got it. I, I don't look to anything else to be justified. But can I just tell you that there are ways that the human impulse is to add to this good news. It is. The human impulse is to add to it. And we can do it doctrinally or we can just do it subtly and pragmatically. We add to the gospel. And the danger is that in doing that, we lose it. So imagine with me for a moment that this nice 
vase of red water represents the blood of Jesus, his finished work on the cross. And what we do quite often is we go, you know, this is so beautiful and it's so good, but you know what else? We probably need to make sure we have baptism. I think you need that to be justified before God. Or doctrinally, maybe speaking in tongues. Or perhaps you need the Lord's table. You know what? Maybe pragmatically having my quiet time every day. I mean, I know that the blood of Jesus is sufficient, but if I'm not having my quiet time, can I really be justified before God? Maybe it's a certain political affiliation that we say, you can't be a Christian unless you think this way. Maybe it's nationalistic zeal, certain level of it you gotta have. Maybe we add that. Or maybe we would add on not just national, maybe a certain way of thinking about justice and practicing justice. And every time we add something, what happens? You see, when we add to the gospel, anything, any work required for justification, whether it be that we subtly slip into it in a pragmatic way in how we function and live or think about others, or whether it be doctrinally that we embrace, yes, baptism is required for saving grace. Whichever it be, we haven't just taken a good thing and added more good things on top of it. We've taken the good thing and by adding things on it, we've lost the good thing. If you add anything to the blood of Jesus, you do not have the blood of Jesus. I'm gonna tell you why in just a moment as we get into one of our future points, but I need you to see that. You are not adding good upon good. Now, here's the thing. Everything I mentioned, baptism, the Lord's Supper, having a quiet time, practicing justice, having patriotism. These are all good things. Would we agree? All those are good things. They are not justifying things. Not a one of those things can justify and when you start functioning like you need them in order to be justified or others must have them in order to be justified, you have begun to slip into the legalism that says there are works required for justification. And once you require works for justification, you don't have the blood of Jesus. It stands alone or it does not stand. Does it make sense? Now, the next thing we see here is that we don't just have to preserve it because the human impulse is to add to it, but also because real lives are in the balance. Now, you notice in verse three that he said, verse two and three, he said, I took Titus along with him for this little visit. And most scholars think the reason for that is because he wanted in this conversation to keep in front of Peter and James and John and himself that real people are gonna be impacted by the decision we're about to make. There's a real man named Titus and he, will really, he really needs to know how to be right with God. And if you tell me that it's circumcision is required in addition to believing in Jesus, then that's gonna impact him. We need to keep that in front of us. And what do the apostles discern and decide? They say, no, no. Paul says, they added nothing to me. Titus was not forced or required to be circumcised. They clarified that it is the cross of Jesus and the cross of Jesus alone that could justify Titus and everyone else who would come to him. And so friends, the thing I would say that's a great reminder from this text for us 
is that you and I need to strain and, and be diligent to keep relationship with people who do not believe in or love Jesus. Because we need to remember that the message that we've been entrusted impacts real people. It is not a subject for, uh, for it's not fodder for debate. It's not meant to be first and foremost, this philosophical issue that we wrestle with over and, and kind of pick apart and, and debate over. That's not what the gospel is. First and foremost, the gospel is saving work. The gospel is a declaration of good news to everyone. And we have to keep that in front of us. Real people, real people are impacted. That's why it has to be preserved. Because if we lose the gospel, we lose real people. If your heart, I was reading First John with my kids. It's where we are in the scriptures in our nighttime reading. We're reading it. I just remind that again. We read it and then I was all right, tell me something you learned. Tell me something you're taking away. And as the other day, one of my kids said, it was just so simple in First John. They said, I can't say that I love God if I don't love people. I was like, yeah, that's exactly right. Because the love of God transforms our hearts so that we love people. We love one another as brothers and sisters in the Lord and we love our neighbor. And I'm fooling myself if that love is not in me. Real people are impacted by the preservation of the gospel. That's why we have to keep it and preserve it and not be fooled into thinking we're being more loving by losing it or by changing it or adapting it to make it more palatable, more comfortable for people. That's not loving anybody. Real lives are impacted by the gospel. And then the last thing we see is because there's no freedom without it. Now, he said in these harsh words he has for these brothers. We've got to preserve the gospel because without preserving the gospel, there's no freedom. It goes to the real lives being impacted. But let's think about how does adding anything to the gospel cause us to be enslaved? He says that these false brothers, in other words, they had, uh, these were not true brothers and they came in with false motives. They wanted to spy out the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus in order to do what? What did he say? to enslave us, to enslave us. So what he's saying is, and he says, we didn't yield to them for even a second, for not a minute. Why not? Because it wouldn't have been, the, the gospel wouldn't have been preserved if we did yield to them. So we didn't yield for even a second, he says. But let's think about what does it mean that they're trying to enslave Paul and Peter and James and John and Titus and us? Why does adding to the gospel amount to people trying to enslave those that they are declaring the addition of the gospel to. Let's think about the three types of freedom we talked about, and I'm going to add a fourth to it. If the gospel is able to give freedom from death, the thing you need to recognize, friends, is that it gives freedom from death based upon faith in the finished work of Jesus. And then if I add something to it, I'm not saying I have faith and it adds on to more faith, like faith in Jesus, and I'm adding also faith in this whatever thing that I'm adding to it. The second I take some of my faith and place it over here, I've got less of it over here. And the second I don't have all of it over here on the finished work of Jesus, I don't have any of it on the finished work of Jesus. I have taken away its ability to rob death of its victory. I am still enslaved to death because I haven't put the full weight of all the faith over here. So I'm still enslaved to death. Why am I still enslaved to the law if I add anything to the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Because the second I take anything that I do and say, you know what? It's really Jesus plus this. 
plus this thing that I do. The second I do that, I have put myself right back in the performance trap. All I've done is say, and Paul's going to say this later, if you say I got to have one piece of work in addition to Jesus, then you better do them all. You're going to have to do every work of the law, every single thing. So two things happen. You say it's Jesus plus whatever this work is that I'm adding to it. You can never do that work well enough to actually justify yourself. And it requires you to do all the other works as well. So the second I do one thing false, I recognize I've come up short. And if I'm putting weight for justification here and here, now I'm on the performance cycle. And I'm saying, I've got to earn it. And I got to keep going. And I can't do it well enough. And I've got to do it better. Can I remind you, when you first trusted in Jesus, do you remember what a freeing feeling it was? Do you remember what it was like when all of a sudden you didn't have to keep performing for God and for people? Do you remember what that was like? Do you remember how a weight just lifted off your shoulders? And all of a sudden you're, you're telling me that if I believe in him, I am loved and it will never be taken from me? Are you telling me that I will begin to believe that who he made me is exactly who he intended me to be? Are you telling me that when I mess up, it doesn't dent my identity even one bit? My identity is still intact and he lovingly disciplines and corrects me and, and moves me forward. He's gonna make me change and different, but it didn't touch who I am at my depth, at my core, because that is, that is established in Jesus and it never goes away. Do you remember the freedom of that? We lose sight of that. We start adding stuff and we forget that we're just enslaving ourselves to that cycle all over again. Friends, if you've never heard that, can I just tell you, there's an identity available to you in Jesus that will change everything. The performance trap goes away. You are loved. You're rooted in that love. You're established in it. It never leaves you. It never forsakes you. He will stay with you. If everyone else leaves you, he will not. Praise God. That's good news. And it's just true. It just is. It's true. But if you add anything, now you're on the performance cycle and you're still enslaved to the law. And that last kind is enslaved to sin. The reason you're now, if you add anything to the cross and say, I need this plus this, the second you do that, you're still enslaved because the spirit of God has not taken up residence in you. And what we're gonna find in Galatians 5 and 6, look, Paul is gonna be adamant that there is a right way for Christians to live. There are right things for us to do. They're just not for our justification. Yes, be baptized. Yes, take the Lord's Supper. Yes, have your quiet. Thought. Yes, all these things. Yes, yes, yes. But none of them are to justify you. None of them can make you right with God. That has to happen first. And so if that hasn't happened, then you don't have the spirit. And what he's going to say is the spirit is the one who teaches you how to live. In Galatians 5 and 6, we're going to see the importance of the spirit of God guiding and leading and directing us. And so if the spirit isn't there, you're still enslaved to those worst desires that you have. The ones you're like, I don't want to do that anymore. But when the spirit takes up residence, he changes our desires. He shapes our lives. He guides us and he leads us away from sin. We have power over it now. We're not subject 
to those temptations to follow our lowest and worst desires. But we are able to put them to death through the power of the Spirit. Praise God. The last kind of slavery that you are in is if you add anything else to the cross, whoever it is that is telling you and teaching you that you need to add that, just like the Galatians were being told by these Judaizers is kind of the name we give to them. You're enslaved to the people that you're listening to. What they're really doing is trying to exercise power and authority. They're trying to gain influence for themselves. Anyone who adds something to the cross of Jesus is trying to gain power over you. They're trying to gain a following. They're trying to gain prestige. They're trying to gain money. They're trying to gain something. But when they add to the cross of Jesus, they're making him less sufficient in order to make themselves necessary. And that is wicked and it is evil. And that's exactly what they're doing. And when you follow that pathway, you then become enslaved to the people that you're listening to. You become enslaved to that pundit. You become enslaved to that teacher. You become enslaved to that leader. And we are to be slaves of only one. His name is Jesus. Now let's, let's do, and I said these are very simple. Let's do these last two. How? Those are the whys that this text gives. Why must we preserve the gospel? Let's talk about how. And again, I mean, do not make it complex, okay? Number one is you resolve in your heart and in your mind to keep the gospel and not add anything to it. Do you see what he said uh, in the middle of our text there when he says, we determined not to yield to them for even a minute? What he's saying is we had already determined that we would never add anything to the finished work of Jesus. And so when someone came and said, you need to add something to the finished work of Jesus, they immediately recognized it and said, no, we refuse to do it. You need to determine in your mind and heart today to never add anything to the gospel. Never add anything to the justifying work of the cross of Jesus. Then the second thing, that he says is not just, okay, well, I have to be determined. I have to be vigilant and determined not to add anything to it. But in addition, the, the second thing that he does in order to preserve it is he says, I'm going to preserve it by telling others about it. Now, did you notice in verse seven through 10, what does he say? We were entrusted with the gospel to the Gentiles. Peter and James and John are entrusted with it to the Jews. And we are going to tell it to others. And then it's going to bear fruit. And he even gives a specific example of a kind of fruit, verse 10, when he says, they told me to make sure that we care for the poor. And I was eager to do that. Now, just quickly, let's ask, why, how is that not adding something to the gospel? They said, don't, you don't need to add circumcision, but we do want you to care for the poor. What, are they just adding that? And the reason that we say no, absolutely, is because they're not doing, they're not caring for the poor to justify themselves before God. They're doing what we just talked about. There are right ways for Christians to live because we are justified and one of the key things that indicates that we have the Spirit of God in us is that we care about those who are in need. We care about people in need. He says that's the natural outflow of believing the gospel. You don't care for the poor to get justified, but you care for the poor because you are justified. He says, I want you to care for the poor. He says, absolutely. That's what we want to do. But friends, here's the thing I want you to really see today is that there is this temptation when we use words like preserve and protect and guard that we think of it as this huddling up and hiding something away. And you do not preserve the gospel by keeping it to yourself. Can I make sure that you hear that? You do not preserve the gospel by saying, I'm gonna huddle up over here and keep it to myself. You preserve the gospel by telling it to others because the more people who believe it, 
the more people who are proclaiming it, and the more people who are proclaiming it, the more people to go, no, no, I will not add anything to the finished work of Jesus. The gospel doesn't get watered down through sharing. It gets, it gets lifted up through sharing. So friends, I wanna encourage you. You've got to be speaking the gospel. You've got to be telling people the good news of justification by grace through faith alone in the finished work of Jesus. It's the best news that's ever been in existence or ever will be in existence. And the more we share it with others, the more we preserve it. Preservation is active, not passive. It's active, not passive. Now, friends, as we think about this, here's what, I, here's what I want to encourage you. As we think about preserving the gospel, ultimately, and it wasn't in our specific text today, but ultimately we want to preserve the gospel because it glorifies Jesus. Because it glorifies Jesus. The second we add anything to it, we detract from his glory. The second we say Jesus plus anything, we make him less sufficient. And we don't want to do that. As an example of this, think about Revelation chapter four and chapter five. In Revelation chapter four, there are these amazing creatures surrounding the throne of God. And this throne is described as being uh, full of lightnings, lightning and peals of thunder and surrounded by a rainbow that looks like an emerald and there's a sea of glass extending from it. And then there are these four creatures whose existence seems to be solely to surround the throne of God and never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then there's 24 elders around them and they are declaring whenever those creatures cry, holy, 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 which they, we were told they never stopped doing, the elders bow down and throw their crowns at the feet of God and they declare, worthy are you to receive glory and honor and power for by you, all of the universe was created and everything in it. And you would think that's amazing scene of worship. But look at what happens in the very next chapter. In chapter five, there's a scroll, set of scrolls that can't be opened. They have these seals on them. And John is disturbed because the purposes of God are not able to be unleashed. He says, what are we gonna do? And then someone shows up on the scene, the lamb who was slain. And those same four living creatures and those same elders who had just been declaring the holiness of God and his worthiness because he's the creator begin to sing praises to Jesus in the presence of God who is the lamb who was slain at the, right beside the throne of God, it says. And they declared him, worthy are you. Worthy are you to open the scrolls because by your blood, they say, worthy is the lamb who was what? Slain. What made him worthy? The blood. Not the blood plus, the blood. Worthy are you to receive glory and honor and worship and power and wisdom. For by your blood, you redeemed people from among every group, from among every tribe and nation. You see, friends, what we're seeing there is the worship of God and the worship of Jesus together. And why is Jesus worthy of the same worship that God is worthy of? Because he is the lamb who was slain. Don't add to the blood of Jesus. It is sufficient. And we preserve the gospel. We preserve the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together and then let's worship him with the host of heaven, shall we? Lord Jesus, you are magnificent. 
perfect in all your ways. Everything about you completely righteous. You are creator, you are redeemer. And we adore you. We would not dream, even for a minute, King Jesus, to believe that anything we could ever do would add to your blood. The power of it, the saving power of it, the sufficiency of it. And so guard us against it. Help us to preserve the gospel and to do it by entrusting it to others. We've been entrusted with it now. We want to take it forward and share it with others so that you, King Jesus, would get all the glory and the praise that we would say as we sing now to you, hear our praises. You are worthy to receive glory, honor, wisdom, power, because you have purchased people from among every tribe for your great glory through your sufficient blood. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>